Thank you, Elder Moses. Um, again, welcome to all of you uh, and those of you at home. Let's continue to worship the Lord with the reading of God's Word, and I'll preach from the Word. Would you turn with me from, on your Bible from, uh, on James to James chapter 1, right, verse 13 to 18. I will read James 1, 13 to 18. This is the sermon's text. Otherwise, you can refer to the screen over here. And for you, those of you at home, it will be good to keep your, your Bible open to the verses as I refer to it. And I read James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when he has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, and therefore sisters as well. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This, this is the word of God. Let's come before our Lord in prayer that he will reveal to us his words. O Heavenly Father, indeed, you are the giver of every good gifts. And so this morning, we ask of you to give us, give us the gift of wisdom to know your word. And more so, Lord, give us the gift and the power of the resurrection that we may overcome our sins and to do what your word says. So Lord, do help us as we come together with your presence that we receive this power with much joy and also trembling. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So, how many of us have heard of the story of Adam and Eve? Children? Yeah? Adam and Eve and some of you will say the apple, right? But we know it's may not be the apple, it's some kind of fruit, right? So, a fruit. My guess is, again, all of us would have heard and read about it. In the historical and narration of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, inevitably, one word that comes to our mind is temptation. What is a temptation? Is temptation a sin? or the sin. And that may lead some, even believers, to ask, was Eve or Adam tempted by God? Wow. Have that, have you, have that ever crossed your mind? Especially children, right? At home. Yeah, have you ever heard? Uh, wonder. Especially when we go through trials in our lives, we would often blame others for our failures, 
in our trials. In fact, recently society has taken the blame game to the extremes. Offenders in the court trials would blame their environment, blame their upbringing, blame their government, blame, blame the families, blame the, the, blame the parents, blame the spouses, even blame their own children right, for the crimes they commit. And guess what? After hearing some of the offenders' background and stories, especially with the jury system in the West, those some were very legitimate stories behind how he led them to it. They were acquainted. They were released without them having to take any responsibilities. Now, even for believers, when we face pressing and even long-drawn trials, we may fail to take any responsibility for our own sin. There may be many reasons why we fail to do that. But in our text today, James gives us one of the reasons. He implied that we fail because we are not clear and even confused about the differences between our temptations, desires, and sins. And because of that, most of us would default to yield to our temptations to sin and then play the blame game with the devil and with others. I say default because we have a condition that none of us escapes. And if you deny this default, or original condition, then you would deny the gospel, deny the good news of Jesus Christ. Accordingly, you would deny your need for a Savior, and absolutely, then you would deny Jesus as your Lord. And for this reason, to help us to remain steadfast in our faith, the text in the sermon today will flesh out the truths of the gospel that will, that will save us when we are tempted. So the big idea of the sermon is this. When we are tempted, let us return to the truths of the gospel. What are the truths of the gospel from our text? There are three truths, and they are the modes of temptations, desires, and sins, the Heavenly Father giving good gifts, and last but not least, the kind of children of God. Now let us first unpack the truths of the most of temptations, desires, and sins of people from verses 13 to 15. Now the most here is, uh, is as in, in the ways or manners in which they occur or experience and even expressed. Now before the order, James begins to divide temptations and desires and sins into their modes. He has, he has to establish and then qualify something first at the very beginning. That God is not the author of evil in verse 13. In other words, as much as God is not evil to tempt, he, he allowed the fall of Adam and Eve when tempted by the devil. And so evil is in this world or entered this world. You know, even so, God cannot be tempted by evil outside of himself. In other words, 
God is immune. Right? He's immune to the evil of the world. Evil cannot touch him, cannot penetrate him. He doesn't have to breathe in the virus of evil because he don't. He's just separate and he, evil cannot touch him. And here is the good news for all of us. And because God is immune to evil, He is always good. He's always good. Even when things around us goes very bad, goes very wrong. And when our health is not holding up. And even when evil seems to prevail, God is good. Always good. For this reason, James doubles, doubles down on God's goodness and stated that God, He Himself tempts no one. So He's re-emphasizing at the very last even verse, uh, last part of the verse 13. Now to be clear of the claim of James that God is not the altar of evil, then we need to understand the two modes of temptations the two categories of sins and the two outcomes of a trial. Now, first thing, we need to understand that there are two modes of temptations to fully appreciate what verse 13 is saying here. Now, the two modes are from the outside of us and then the other mode is from the inside of a person. Now, the beginning of verse 13 reads, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now, the first tempted and the second tempted differs in the mode of temptations. The first is tempted from the outside of a person, and the second tempted is from the inside of a person. Why do I say that? Or how do I get that, right? The first tempted in the Greek is para, parasomenos. All right? It's a verb from the root word of the noun trial or testing. It's the same root word. In fact, it's the same from the same root word of trial and testing in verse 2. In other words, the first tempted means to be tested or to put on trial. And tempted in the Greek is in the passive, what we call the passive voice, a participle. So it's being acted upon from the outside. For these reasons, the tempted here, the first tempted here is in the mode of temptation from the outside of a person. So the beginning of verse 13 is saying this. Right, listen. Let no one say when he's tested by a temptation from the outside. All right, so this is how he's tempted. Next, the second tempted in the Greek. Paras Parasomai, right? Parasomai. Now, those who know your Greek, eh? when you hear omai oh or somai, it is in the passive middle voice, which the person acts on himself or herself, right? For this reason, the second tempted here is in the mode of temptation that is from the inside of a person, from the inside of a person. Then the first part of verse 13 is saying this, let no one say when he's tested, uh, to be tested by a temptation from the outside, that the temptation from the inside of me is caused by God. Alright? Get it? So the first tempter is from the outside, simply. The second tempter is from the inside. So when you are tempted from the inside, uh, cannot say it's from God. Alright? So that is what he's trying to say. 
So, in other words, God do not and does not or do not participate or act in our temptations at all. To be sure of the two modes of temptation that God is not involved, James restates it again in verse 14 and make this distinction. Verse 14 reads, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now the temptation from the outside that is alluring, that is attractive, and is absolutely morally wrong. All right? Then being enticed, baited, all right? hooked by his own desire from the inside. So something from the outside is going on, but it's from the inside that is allowed to get hooked, all right? baited and then get hooked, enticed and get hooked. So Jesus taught his disciples to pray. What? Why did he pray? He said, let us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and then Luke chapter 11. It's in the sense of this, do not allow us to give into temptation. Not that the Lord lead us into temptation, that he, he wants to lead us into temptation, but it's, it's in the sense of do not allow us to give into temptation. All right? But God may lead believers into the place. All right? Here is the thing. But God may lead believers into the place in which the devil in which the devil by their own or and or by their own natural desires that will tempt them okay so just as the holy spirit led christ into the wilderness where satan tempted, tempted him these temptations narratives should not be viewed as contradicting to, uh, to James 1 verse 13 here. All right? uh, neither neither uh, on this issue nor the question of how Jesus could be tempted if he was fully God, and God again cannot be tempted to do wrong. So the reform answer is this. Throughout the church history, that it must have been that Jesus' human nature, not his divine nature, that was tempted from the outside and not from inside of Jesus, right? So he was born without the original sin of Adam and Eve. From the inside, here we are talking about sinful desires like sexual lust. Uh, though, I might say, and have to qualify here, that not every desire is sinful, like, for example, the desire to eat. All right? you, you have the hunger, the desire to eat is not sinful. All right? You must eat, by the way. So, again, from, uh, for example, from the perspective of men, uh, when, I, I must say that, I have to qualify here, I have to say from the perspective of men, because I am a man. I'm going to give the example for myself, all right? And nobody else. From the perspective of a man, when I was in, on a, uh, in Florida, right, and uh, we go to beaches, and even right now, by the way, uh, on the news page of online media, right, I will face temptation from the outside because there are just pictures there or you know, people there who are just not dressed properly. Right? And I will see images that will tempt me. And when I do encounter them, 
I could either choose to obey God to flee in my mind from letting my sinful desires take over, imagination take over, or I could choose to let my mind wander and then my heart will be inflamed with sinful passions. Now, under those circumstances, you should be prompted to ask, what is that sinful desire which comes from the inside of every person? Right? Okay, so next, the second thing of the claim of Jesus that God is not the author of evil is this, that we'll do well to realize there are two categories of sin. Notably, right, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, section 6, teaches us every sin, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, all right, and so on and so forth. So over here, you see that the categories are two, original sin and actual sins. So in other words, there is this actual uh, the original sins that we inherited from the fall of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God already inside of all of us. And so unbelievers, unbelievers, I say again, so unbelievers cannot not rebel against God. They cannot not sin against God. However, the believers now have the power of Christ's resurrection to choose either to act out against God, which verse 15 says that will give birth to sin, or we could fight and overrule sinful desires with actual sins before we commit them. Right? Now, we need to realize that sinful desires and last insights are the original sins even before we act on it so john kelvin comments that there seems to be stages before a person's sin in verse 15. however he says this it seems however improper and not according to the usage of scripture which is the whole of the bible to restrict the word sin to outward works as though indeed last itself were not a sin and as though corrupt desires remaining close up within and suppressed were not so many sins but as the use of a word is various there is nothing unreasonable if it be taken here as in many other places for actual sins in other words if you interpret here that sin is just an inclination it's a disorder until you embrace and act on it you are wrong in fact this is one school of thought from olden times which in singapore i will not name right it's called concupiscence you can search out that yourself we are not in agreement with the theology of concupiscence all right and that's why the reformation happened by the way or one of the reasons why the reformation happened because according to the other passages in the Bible, the doctrine of the original sin and actual sins are both sins against God. So accordingly, 
The third thing of the claim that James is making here that God is not the altar of evil, it is most important to realise here you know, about when you're being tempted is that there are two outcomes. There are two outcomes. There are the outcomes of spiritual and eternal death as spelled out in verse 15 or the outcome of becoming the children of God, which James calls a kind of first fruits of his creatures in verse 18. And I'll unpack that in a little while. Now, the compelling evidence that believers are children of God is when James addresses God as the Father of light in verse 17. Now, above all, God is the Heavenly Father who loves His children and lavishes them with many good gifts. Right? And another key truth of the Gospel that we need to return to is the Heavenly Father give, gives good gifts. Now, then we must ask, who is this Father? James emphasized in verse 16, and it's almost commanding us. The language here is almost commanding us. I know in some translation, it doesn't have the word let. But because it does have almost the language of commanding us, it uses do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. That this God is anything like our earthly father who sinned and would cause us to see. To be sure, do not and do not be misled that God is so personal like we would, could approach Him calling Daddy, alright? We cannot approach God and just call Him Daddy, Daddy. God is personal and close, but not so close, alright? That you would have no reverence, no respect, like coming on a Sunday and not listening at all to God's Word, right? And you're not at all as a divine presence altogether collectively. Right? So, he's not so close that you can disregard him when we all gather together, especially when we're all together together. Because he is divine. He is holy. And for this reason, James grounds us in the second part of verse 17, emphasizing that God is the father of lights. And as, again, I'll say I'll unpack that a little while. But first, let's take a step back and dwell on the fact that God, as the fathers of all believers, for James to address God as the father would have blown the mind out of many Jews at the time. To the Jews, God is Yahweh, the great I am the one whose name cannot be spoken because it's so holy. It must not be defiled even by human lips because it's unclean. Now, the Jews actually have the right postures of reverence that they were not worthy to speak of God's name. But as an untended result, right, they thought that God is so far away, so impersonal, you know, that God is indeed so holy, so transcendent, and apart from His creation, He's so divine, He's totally out of this world, He's like the untouchable. And yet, God reveals to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God is personal. God is personal. 
like a father to a child. However, again, he's not like our earthly fathers. God is the perfect father of what our fathers, or some of us as fathers, ought to be. He's always nearby. He's always present. And that's why when you think of the omnipresence of God, right, I think of His fatherly presence. That should have said something to us in His presence. He's always on the lookout to protect. He will always provide good things as gifts for nurturing, providing, and growing His child. His children, all the believers. More than a father figure, verse 15 says that God is called the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Right, this is in the ESV version. Now, the phrase in Greek is actually this, more closer to no variation or shadow turning. All right? Now, when we say or no variation or shadow turning, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, because that's most likely, this, 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 this observation here, right, is, could be an idiom during their time, but it just, we just lose it. We, we don't know what they're talking about. But most likely is this. It arises from observing an ancient, something like a sundial or moondial or you know, device of sort that they can tell the time because they cast a shadow and it changes over time. So in other words, God, the Father of lights here, is emphasizing that God is the Father, he is the creator and he's the constant, the constant and unchanging source for all lights. For all lights. Like the sun, like the moon, like the stars and in the universe. For this reason, God as the father of lights is the believer's heavenly father. He's had a heavenly father as what? Elder Moses led us to pray. He is our Heavenly Father. And He is the one that provides and gives every good and every, every good gift and every perfect gift. Now, the good gift here would most likely be referring to the gift of wisdom in verse 5. All right? And the perfect, accordingly, the perfect gifts could be referring to the perfect gift of faith in Christ Jesus the perfect gift of salvation that will not be altered the perfect joy that we will all have and the perfect intercessory prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ however the emphasis here right is not about the gifts all right so if you read right you think it's about the gifts, but no, it is actually about the, the heart of the giver, the heart of the giver, the heavenly Father's heart of giving. All right, these gifts. But I would say that, yes, these gifts in context are those gifts, but I would say that it might not be just restricted to those gifts, and I won't dwell into that, because these other gifts you know yourself very well. All right, we have plenty of them material ones and uh, relationship and all that, all right? There are all these uh, so-called the results of the other gifts. So what is the big deal here, you might ask? 
And some believers here may say, oh, there's nothing new here. I knew it. I, I knew this all. Oh, this is this, uh, this, uh, hematology, man. This is about sin. No, I know. About temptation, I know. But what James would be asking here is, do you really know? Do you really know as in you believe this? Do you believe that God is the Father of light, your Father? And have you indeed enjoyed these gifts of wisdom? Enjoy this salvation? Enjoy the joy of itself? Enjoy prayers? So much so that you're experiencing actually a real change in your life in the midst of trials. So a good question for all of us here is this. In the midst of trial of this COVID-19 situation, are you the same? Are you complaining about the same thing? Or have God revealed something to you through wisdom, through the supernatural prayer of your life? Is there any prayer in your life? Have God spoken about your trials? Or are you in the, still the same position? Either against this, against that, this is no good, that is no good. Ah, I'm so troubled all the time. Are you in the same position as you were one and a half years ago? This you must ask. Do you know and experience these gifts from the Heavenly Father? And I have to ask, have you known the Heavenly Father's heart of generous giving? The generous giving. Did the Heavenly Father justify for giving you anything good based on your quantifiable, countable merits, your contributions, your abilities, your capabilities, and even the results of your works? especially your works in the church, then why would we require the merits of those who serve or don't serve, work or don't work in the church, in order to justify giving them anything good, though they may be undeserving? And I have to gently say this, have meritocracy and pragmatism permeated the church and replaced the covenant of grace of the Heavenly Father? Now, to be sure, I'm not against meritocracy, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not against being pragmatic, as in being practical, to do some steps. If you know me, uh, I go to the details of things as well as look at the bigger picture. So my, my concern is this, have, have it replaced the covenant of grace of the Heavenly Father? That's, that's my main concern. Now you see, the covenant of grace works in such a way that the more able and even superior giver is always at the losing end. It's always at the losing end. And intentionally, in fact, the, the giver intentionally disadvantage himself or herself to actually advantage the receiver who is less able to. So the Heavenly Father gives at the cost and loss of His Son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. In other words, the disposition, I will say again, the disposition of the Heavenly Father's heart is, 
his willingness to disadvantage himself, if that's possible at all, all right? Of course, theologically, that's not possible. But I'm saying his disposition, all right? He don't change. He cannot be disadvantaged. But his disposition is his willingness to disadvantage himself, to actually advantage, all right, the children and his church. For those of us receiving from the church, you should ask yourselves, how are you giving to one another in the church? Are you at the losing end or are you always looking out to get an advantage from our church or churches? I ask again, do you know the Heavenly Father's heart of giving and His covenant of grace? For example, a trainee scheme or a fellowship scheme in the church. The idea behind the scheme is actually leadership development. To nurture the next generations of leaders and gospel ministers. To have a vested interest in a young person's or person's life with a possible calling when they are of lesser. Lesser in what? They are lesser of resources. Now, young people, they have one thing. They have plenty of one thing, by the way. What is that? Do you know? Of course, young people, you will deny that. Lah. All right. But most young people right, have actually plenty of time. They have plenty of time. But most would not come from a wealthy background and do not have access to the resources to sustain themselves to do the church work that requires. But church work is not like ordinary employment. I would say it's more like deployment. A movement of actually one resources to accomplish the goal altogether. A movement from one resource pool to the next in order to accomplish the whole goal together. It's more like a scientist doing a study, experimenting and doing research. So, would the more able church members nurture these young ones like a father or a mother who disadvantage themselves by investing both their time and money to train their children's future without expecting to get anything in return from their children in the future. You know, parents in Singapore, especially parents in Singapore, in fact, this is almost a global phenomenon already. I'm, I'm hearing from the East, the West, Australia, everywhere, right? It's the same thing. Fathers, parents will, will start investing uh, as early as possible. If the, if the child can talk already, uh, wow, must go to an enrichment program. Must go through already, you know? And uh, they, they give time to volunteer, in fact, work, all right? For the school, primary school that they have target to go in, uh, to get the children into a very, you know, so-called a good primary school. Of course, I'm not saying this. I'm not trying to go against some policy here, but I'm just saying that there's a good primary school. Yeah, in the perception of good primary school, right? And uh, because we have one here that 
just gotten in or rather in, enrolled in primary one. So I know the, the stories behind all the, the parents. They, they, they do they do sacrifices. I couldn't imagine how they put themselves through those things. Uh, but of course, good for the, the school. Huh? They put their money into enrichment classes and invest to advantage their children at a very young age for their future. So then my question is very simple. Then why shouldn't the, cho- the, the, the church do likewise? To have the Father's heart to disadvantage ourselves to advantage the younger ones by investing and paying those willing to take up a training or a fellowship program or scheme. You see, in Singapore, you yourself very know. You say, you know it's practically very tough, very hard to sponsor oneself to do church work or then, and, then, and then go to seminary. You know? Every other church in Singapore, at least from where I stand and from where I know. Now, every other church seems to wait for God to airdrop the final product of a seminary trained minister without a plan to actually nurture or pay for the price and invest for the future minister. So the investing and performance matrix here in the church is almost falling like the world. And it should be different from an organization in the sense that it should be more like a family, right? It it should be based on the development and ascertaining character rather than merely performance capability. And do we all not know the qualifications and requirements of a church office bearer or worker in the letter of Timothy and Titus? Now, for those of us who are more able now should be like a father, a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to a Timothy or a Titus of the church, the younger ones, investing both in time and realistically money to the future of the church, even when it disadvantages us and we get nothing back at the end of it all. Do we know the heavenly Father's heart of giving and His covenant of grace. The more able one giving to the less able. Now for those of us already giving lots to the church, then you should ask yourselves, is your disadvantaging yourself to help others do you know the Heavenly Father's heart of giving? Or is it hardening and breaking your heart? Especially when you see others uh, uh, are not giving or uh, seemingly are not working as hard as you. Or in fact, they show no results at all in the church. Perhaps the more hard question Right, and also quite a hard question for me to ask is not in just your giving, but how are you receiving actually? How are you receiving the good gifts of God? Are you receiving your salvation? Are you receiving your salvation to pay back to God 
by working hard in the church? Could you receive the gift of God and pay Him back? No. Would you ask and receive help from others then in your lives or ask others to help? Have you experienced and the receiving of the Heavenly Father's giving and His covenant of grace truly? How are all of us experiencing being the children of God in the church receiving His gifts? Because how you are receiving, uh, right, is actually how you view your giving, you know. In some sense. Perhaps a reminder of the third truth of the gospel would remind us that the kind of children of God would help us out a little bit here more. After highlighting that God is the creator of the universe in verse 17, James zoomed in on a kind of creation in verse 18, or a kind of creation of God in verse 18. Now this particular kind of creation is born, is born out of God's free will. In the sense that he absolutely needs nothing more. Nothing can add more to his love, love, nothing can add more to his joy. Yet, yet, out of this perfect love of God, that he has the morally right desire to brought us forth by the word of truth. It says in verse 18. The phrase brought us forth, right? When literally translated from the Greek, it should be given birth to us. Right? It's difficult for us to understand if it's translated that way. But it is in this light of a positive outcome of the trial as compared to the legitimate outcome of verse 15, give birth to sin. So actually in the Greek, you can see the contrast very, very almost starkly, right? One gives birth to sin and this one gives, you know, God gives birth, right? Uh, to us by the truth, by the word of God, uh, by the truth of God, right? By the word of truth, sorry. So, here is the summation of gospel truths from the Old Testament to what they have heard and experienced from Jesus Christ. Because when James wrote this letter, most likely, it was the first letter of the New Testament. So putting the first part of verse 18 back together from the Greek language, he has the sense of this, uh, he has the sense of this. God is so impregnated, all right, so pregnant, so impregnated with his perfect love in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has to give birth to his kind of children. Do you see that? He has to give birth, although nothing adds to his joy, nothing adds to his love, but because of his perfect love, his perfect being, he is impregnated with this perfect love of the gospel of Jesus Christ right at the beginning, that he gives birth to the kind of children. And what kind of children are this? It is a divine and godly kind that is birthed from the creator God himself. God, the Heavenly Father, is carrying you in labor to give birth to you. If you are not a believer, 
And you may be going through all the trials, facing the world's sins, the, the devil's temptation, and the wrongful desires within you, and even your objections to God. And yet, you are listening to this sermon right now. Then I will say to you, God may be your heavenly Father, and He's not aborting you, but laboring to give birth, to give birth of faith, to give birth faith to you. He's, he's, he's laboring like a patient and loving mother that carries a child for nine months, long nine months of careful and sometimes even aching labor. And you can ask our mothers, right? And even the fathers sometimes. The, the aching part actually comes from the father you know, doing all the other things. I won't go there, but you can ask <laughs> fathers and mothers. Long time of preparation to prepare the child, to receive the child into the world. And I say again, the parents put in vast amount of energy and time preparing their homes, the, the rooms, the baby uh, cot, and then you have to prepare also uh, sometimes uh, prepare the extended families to receive this new child because they have a stake uh, somehow, right? Now imagine then how the Heavenly Father labors for you, His child. The full-blown pain and joy of giving birth to all His children is in one cosmic event of the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And do you know what pain Jesus has to go through to give birth to you? The most painful event at the cross may not be the physical pain of his torn flesh, as painful as it is. It should have been the rejection of Jesus' family members like you know, Brother James here, right? You see, Brother James uh, is the writer. Brother James is probably, most likely, Jesus' brother. He knows this. And that's why he can speak of the Father's heart. Even James himself, before the resurrection, he would have been giving Jesus the cold shoulder as though he was like some madman. Jesus was rejected by his own family members. Then Jesus has to go through the rejection of his heavenly father when he bore all the original and actual sins of the children of God at the cross. Now then you compare, compare that to all your pains, all your waiting in your trials now, all your laboring in your pains and trials right now. Compare that to God laboring to give birth to us in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, remember all of your past trials, the difficulties, the objections, and you were Right? Like me, I'm sure. 
At least I am, I have to, I have to, I have to admit, I was a difficult labor, right? I, I caused my Heavenly Father problems that you, know, you guys probably cannot imagine. But I'm sure all of us have stories to tell. And yet, God carries you and me through all that labor pains to give birth, right? To give birth to you and I in faith in Christ. So God absolutely knows your, your pain in yours and my trials right now. And He continues to carry us, to grow and mature us into a kind of children. Now, the kind of children of what God is, uh, the kind of children of God is what James calls the first fruits of His creatures. Now, the term first fruits has the backward sense, again, it's the backward sense of the chosen ones and worship from the Old Testament. So when you hear fruits or first fruits, I always have to tie to, go back to Leviticus, you know, the first five books, you hear always first fruit, first fruits, first fruit. It's a dedication, it's a, it's a giving to, it's, it's a worship to God, right? And it's a, a sense always talking about Israel, the chosen one, and practically done inside the whole tabernacle, right, of worship. And then in the New Testament, he has the forward sense of the children of a new kind, of a new creation into eternity, into eternity. A good indication of what this new creation would be like is the resurrected Christ himself. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So you put these two together with the Old Testament in mind, and then Brother James here, he's, he's thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his future. So if you put these two together, the first fruits, huh, so you get his picture is this. The kind of children of God from you know, the Heavenly Father is those who will worship Him into eternity. Worship Him now into, into eternity. We will receive a new body like Christ. And we are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So then you may ask, what has God that to do with all of us right now on earth, right? So again, come back to very basic question for all of us. How are we doing our worship this morning? Where is our heart for worship? In fact, where is your heart for worship throughout the six days of the week? I know it's very tough. I know it's very tough. But do you know the Father's heart is willing to give you if you ask? What kind of children are you? Or only you are a foster kid? Only Sunday, then you come home. The rest of the week, you're out there in the wild. I'm not putting down on foster kid, by the way. I'm just giving an analogy. So you could be a naughty child, a naughty teen, a naughty young adult, a naughty adult even, and some could be naughty grandparents. Right? You know how grandparents can be naughty also. Huh? But would we obey our Heavenly Father to do according to the word of truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
the gospel truths of our temptations, desires and sins is that they are bad. However, the good news for the believers is that we have the power of Christ's resurrection to choose not to give in. We are no longer slave to either the original sin from the inside. And we are not sin, and we're not slave to the actual sin that we can commit from the outside. We are free to choose to do the right thing. I say again, we are free to choose to do the right thing. We can obey our Heavenly Father because we are His legitimate spiritual children born again by the Holy Spirit Himself laboring since we were in our mother's womb till we meet Him again. This is the heart of the Father giving to us, advantaging us, disadvantaging Himself. We remember His covenant of grace. This is the preached word of God.